Welcome to the Sense Making in a Changing World podcast, where we explore the kind of thinking we need to navigate a positive way forward. I'm your host, Maura Gamble, permaculture educator and global ambassador, filmmaker, eco-villager, food forester, mother, practivist, and all-round lover of thinking, communicating, and acting regeneratively. For a long time, it's been clear to me that to shift trajectory to a thriving one-planet way of life, we first need to shift our thinking. The way we perceive ourselves in relation to nature, self, and community is the core. So this is true now more than ever, and even the way change is changing is changing. Unprecedented changes are happening all around us at a rapid pace. So how do we make sense of this? To know which way to turn, to know what action to focus on, so our efforts are worthwhile and nourishing and are working towards resilience, regeneration and reconnection. What better way to make sense than to join together with others in open, generative conversation? In this podcast, I'll share conversations with my friends and colleagues, people who inspire and challenge me in their ways of thinking, connecting and acting. These wonderful people are thinkers, doers, activists, scholars, writers, leaders, farmers, educators, people whose work informs permaculture and spark the imagination of of what a post-COVID, climate-resilient, socially just future could look like. Their ideas and projects help us to make sense in this changing world, to compost and digest the ideas and to nurture the fertile ground for new ideas, connections and actions. Together we'll open up conversations in the world of permaculture design, regenerative thinking, community action, earth repair, eco-literacy and much more. I can't wait to share these conversations with you. Over the last three decades of personally making sense of the multiple crises we face, I always return to the practical and positive world of permaculture with its ethics of earth care, people care and fair share. I've seen firsthand how adaptable and responsive it can be in all contexts, from urban to rural, from refugee camps to suburbs. It helps people make sense of what's happening around them and to learn accessible design tools to shape their habitat positively and to contribute to cultural and ecological regeneration. This is why I've created the Permaculture Educators Program, to help thousands of people to become permaculture teachers everywhere through an interactive online dual certificate of permaculture design and teaching. We sponsor global perma-youth programs, women's self-help groups in the global south, and teens in refugee camps. So anyway, this podcast is sponsored by the Permaculture Education Institute and our Permaculture Educators Program. If you'd like to find more about permaculture, I've created a four-part permaculture video series to explain what permaculture is and, and also how you can make it your livelihood as well as your way of life. We'd love to invite you to join our wonderfully inspiring, friendly and supportive global learning community. So I welcome you to share each of these conversations and I'd also like to suggest you create a local conversation circle to explore the ideas shared in each show and discuss together how this makes sense in your local community and environment. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I meet and speak with you today, the Gubby Gubby people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the Sense Making in a Changing World show today, Christina Conklin. 
Christina's based in the San Francisco Bay Area. She's an artist, writer and researcher whose work investigates impermanence and possibility. She's recently co-authored The Atlas of Disappearing Places, Our Coasts and Oceans in the Climate Crisis with Marina Soros. They share 20 stories of the impacts of climate change around the world, particularly on cities, and ask questions of how we to mitigate and adapt, and even consider the idea of moving where, where some cities are sinking, and to build and enhance local resilience. You know, sometimes these impacts are... As impacts continue painfully hard choices will have to be made. We really need to be having these conversations now. Christina has included many beautiful maps throughout this book. Each place uh, Christina has included many beautiful maps of each place in this book made of seaweed and she explores throughout the book ecological concepts. Christina has also been a major supporter this year of the work that the Ethos Foundation has been doing in Ramwanja refugee settlement in Uganda. So it's with my great pleasure that I introduce Christina here on the show today. Enjoy. Well, welcome to the show, Christina. It's absolutely wonderful to have you here. Um, Chris, for those listening, Christina and I met just recently, actually, through a, through a refugee living in Uganda. And we're both part of something called the Global um, Regeneration Collab. And uh, and it's through through our shared uh, support of a refugee called Bemariki in, um, in Uganda that we got to meet. And it's through that. Then I started to uncover what Christina actually does. And I'm so delighted that you've joined me on the show today, Christina, because you just recently released your book, which is called um, The Atlas of Disappearing Places, which just in the title of that just evokes such curiosity and wonder. Um, I wonder if you could just sort of give us a little bit of a, an overview of, of that book and, and where it came from to, to start us out. And welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So um, actually it was the publisher who came up with the title. So they um, realized there was a, a big gap. Um, four years ago, there were almost no books on sea level rise or um, anything to do with the ocean and, and, and the climate crisis. And so they uh, saw this opportunity and a need and reached out to my co-author and myself and, um, uh, and, and initially just wanted a book on sea level rise. But, but I had the thought, like, can we, could we broaden the scope of this to actually look at the whole ocean system and take a real systems thinking approach to this and have the ocean be the protagonist and not have this be all about us, right? So many climate change books are very, very anthropocentric. And, um, and to me, that misses half the point. And, and so um, luckily the, the publisher agreed. And so the book is 20 place-based stories about different climate cr- ch- challenges in the ocean, particularly um, also that affect coastal cities and communities. And um, it's divided into four sections, um, changing chemistry, uh, because we're actually changing the fundamental chemistry of the ocean, Um, strengthening storms. um, Those are happening more and more, as we all know. 
warming waters, all the impacts of um, uh, melting ice and warming water and, and um, rising seas. So sea level rise. So um, yeah, basically every aspect of ocean life is being impacted by climate change, of course. And everything from one chapter is about the the microbiology of plankton in the North Atlantic Ocean. And another chapter includes uh, deep sea mining in the Cook Islands, um, harmful algal blooms, uh, you know, storms and sea level rise. So we really cover this vast array of topics. It was a very research intensive project. (laughs) So can you tell me a little bit about in your in the research that you've uh, that you've been doing for this book what are some of the what are some things that you've uncovered that you find really disturbing and that add fuel to the you know the flame of you writing this book and bringing it to light Yeah well the thing that I was most uh, curious and concerned about that I I needed to learn about most myself was um what's happening in the parts of the ocean that we can't see, right? Um, we, we know about storms and sea level rise, but what is happening um, with ocean acidification and what is happening with, you know, in the deep ocean um, and, and, and in the Arctic, I got to go to the Arctic as part of my research, which was really a, a, a thrill. Um, but also, you know, I, I'm fascinated by microscopic life and the, 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 the systems that we, you know, they're so complex and beautiful and we can't see them, but they're the basis of all life. Mm-hmm. Um, it seemed very, very important to understand what's happening there. And so I think the things that concern me most coming out of the book are um, that, you know, the changing chemistry in the warming waters, because these are things that, that have been um, unleashed now and that will not the genie is not going back in the bottle. And that's a very hard um, thing to know. And, you know, the, the, the extinctions that are happening in the ocean and the how, how very little we know about life in the ocean and how, how much we're going to lose before we even get a chance to know it. Um, one study I read said we've only uh, identified 9% of the species in the ocean. Mm. We know almost nothing about the, the deep ocean. Um, there's, there are big research projects happening now as fast as possible, but you know, that, that feeling of little and late was, was really, um, strong for me in, in reading all these research papers. Um, I had not been aware also of deoxygenation, which is Mm -hmm. one of the most critical things happening in the ocean. Um, as, as water warms, it can physically hold less oxygen. And so um, animals that are living in these very fine thresholds of um, sunlight and oxygen, you know, if you imagine like how we live in the air, it's even more intense in the ocean. If you're a a seagoing creature surrounded by this this, uh, substance, water, and it's becoming more acidic and it has less oxygen available to you and the stress it's putting on living systems uh, is really, is really profound. And I think that's, that was what I left with was, was, you know, some real grief around that. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think just as you were saying about, um, the species extinctions, I mean, our focus has been so terrestrial 
And I think, you know, we've when you when you turn turn the globe around to that point where you just see that whole ocean, we're really living on an ocean planet and and it's mostly we're thinking about the land systems. And so what what drew you to be to focus mostly in this work in the oceans? I mean, I know you live by the coast, but was there a deeper connection for you with the ocean and for that to be this sort of central thread that holds your stories together? Yeah. I guess I I, I grew up going to the, uh, the coast in Oregon, and I think there are just people who are ocean people, right? There's like passionate ocean people, and I'm one of them. So um, I, I, I think it's just, it's simply that I, um, uh, I think they call us mermaids, you know, people (laughs) really belong to the sea. And, um, and so, yeah, I just have always felt really passionate about it, very connected to it. It feels, you know, metaphysically like this sort of infinite vessel that, has been around, you know, forever and, and, and has this sort of rhythm and presence that is very comforting to me in in one sense, and also, you know, awe-inspiring and fearful in another. It's, Mm. you don't mess with, with, with the mother, mother Mm. ocean. So, um, it's all of those things, you know, Mm. I, uh, the, the, the ocean up in the Pacific Northwest where I'm from is, is, um, you know, sort of fierce and gray and, 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 uh, and then, you know, having visited the ocean in many, many places, um, it's just such a, um, a a multiple uh, location, Mm -hmm. (laughs) even, even though it is one body of water and one of the maps in the book. So I painted maps for the book, um, on sheets of dried seaweed, which was a challenging type of seaweed is that? Ah, it's the genus Ulva. It's sea lettuce. So these big oh, sheets wow. of sea lettuce. Yeah. I get little sea lettuce where I get Oh, yeah, no. I actually painted every map in the book on a, it's a single sheet that I got that was probably 150 square feet. It was so massive. Yeah. And so, yeah, I would haul it out of the ocean and rinse it and process it and dry it out and, and, and get these big sheets and then paint the maps. Just, let's just rewind there. How do you process that to get it to something that you can actually paint on? Like what, what was your process there? Yeah, I, um, well, it, it, uh, it has, it, it, I don't know. It, it, it just, you, if you stretch it out in a certain way with a certain amount of give, because it will shrink and, you know, lots of trial and error. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and you lay it out on large tables, it will, it will dry into sheets. And the sheets are this, you know, luminescent, translucent green to start. And then they fade over time into a parchment color, kind of manila color. And so you can play with that as well, which is very fun. And um, I'm really, I'm just obsessed with um, playing with uh, using uh, all kinds of algae as my, as my art material primarily right now. Mm. So. so did you, um, like, uh, my other question that I, you know, I came into this conversation was like, you've brought so many things together from arts to science to culture. And I know you're fascinated with, you know, textiles and salt, like there's so many different dimensions to the work that you do. And the point of, of sort of bringing this together in the book and sharing it through, through the voice of the ocean, but through the materials of the ocean too, 
is, is so beautiful. So what are some of the maps that you actually, what, sorry, not all maps, like the, some of them are, there's different types of things that you've drawn on this, on this material. And is that sort of the key part of the story that goes through or is that what holds the book together? Can you tell us a bit about how they feature in the book? Right. So each of the 20 stories in the book has a chapter map, which, which, which transcribes uh, a scientific research map that I just, I took them straight out of research papers because I felt that was, you know, that's the, the, the scientific knowledge we need to be paying attention to and transcribed it onto the seaweed and then layered that onto a map of the place. So for example, uh, Shanghai, um, is there is is the is the chat chapter is about subsidence of uh, delta cities and how they they've uh, drained their aquifers and Shanghai is now nine feet below sea level um, so as sea level rises and storms come so so the floodplain map of of Shanghai is painted on the seaweed and then layered on top of a topo map and and so um, it sort of looks like the seaweed is like eating Shanghai. <laughs> And um, so I think that's thematic, like the seaweed is enveloping the world throughout the book. Um, Each chapter also has maps painted to show that particular climate impact on a global scale. So what are other cities that are subsiding? Um, What are other cities that are at risk of sea level rise? Or How many cities did you find are subsiding? Because this is something that I've been hearing about. I mean, I know Jakarta's moving and there's lots of cities everywhere that are, but I don't actually hear about this very much in in the news. (laughs) No, it's it's, it's it's really, uh, it's, it's critically bad. And actually there's a graph of the, I think top 20 subsiding cities in the book, and most of them are in Asia. Um, Indonesia is just doing a terrible job mm. of, of uh, managing this. Uh, and they have a, this, this idea that they could just build a seawall all around Jakarta and that's going to protect them. But of course, seas are going to rise for the next 500 years um, based on the carbon we've already put into the atmosphere, unless we pull it all back out. Right. So, so, and, and, and the last time we had 420 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere, seas were 50 to 80 feet higher. So this is coming. And the reality of that is one of the things I really wanted to be very frank and honest about in the book, um, to just really look hard at, at the truth. Um, we have to start telling the truth. Mm-hmm. And making different decisions based on the truth. And in a way, sea level rise is one of the easiest things to deal with because all we have to do is move, right? I mean, there's, um, <laughs> we, we've built all our cities, uh, right, you know, in these, in these delta plains and things. But, um, and that's, it's a serious amount of investment. It's a serious amount of uh, change on the horizon. But, um, but as I said earlier, like the thing that worries me more is, is these systemic, uh, changes happening in the in the whole ocean system. Mm. And just on that moving, I mean, just thinking about the number of people who are currently displaced, you know, what is it, one in 100 people are already displaced for, for one reason or other. And this, these stories that you're sharing, this well, not story, but, it, you know, the, the truth of what's happening is means that that's going to be absolutely way more this you know some countries will be able to move their cities other people are going to be 
kind of stuck. This is not just an environmental issue, it's a, a social it's issue, an economic issue. issue. Yeah, it's like everything. Did uh, One of my chapters is about um, the Mekong Delta, where, you know, they grow half of uh, Vietnam's food. Mm. And, um, and it's all less than a meter above sea level and and it will be gone in um in a hundred years or far less and i mean that's you know they say when one meter of sea level has risen 40 percent of that delta will be gone so that's you know 20 million people um and there's already subsistence farmers and part of that chapter is about how they're already suffering and struggling and leaving because they have to. I mean, their their crop yields are down by half. And um, in another chapter, I wrote about Myanmar and the Rohingya refugees, who actually this was never part of the official story, and it it it's just one aspect, of course. But that the the stress caused by um, by salination of farmland and repeated increasing numbers of typhoons was a piece of what ignited that, you know, tragedy. Um, and, and they, they call climate, you know, climate change is a threat multiplier, uh, for, for refugee situations. And it's as much because of ocean related issues as it is because of drought, which is, which has gotten more attention. Mm. Yeah. As a threat multiplier and, and that's, and that kind of just keeps repeating in so many different contexts I hear. So subsiding, subsiding cities, what's, what's another story that you tell in the book? Another, another truth that you, that you put on the table for people? Well, I think another one, um, if, if, if just to think about the cities, one that people don't think about as often is um, there are cities on rivers that are actually fair distance from the ocean that are actually at extreme risk, London is one of them. Hamburg is one of them. It's there is Hamburg seventy miles from the ocean, but um, they were both impacted in the fifties by a major storm that killed thousands. And of course, another storm's coming, right? And so um, they've built some barriers, and they've built you know it's it's easy in some of these uh, in some you know Western governments to spend a lot of money on. Um, Dikes and and flood walls and and this is happening in every uh, major city around the world. Um, New York's looking at building a flood wall. Um, mm-hmm. St. Petersburg's already built one, but these are te- extremely expensive, very temporary measures mm-hmm. that are attempting to hold on to something th- that can't be held. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you what what do you from your research, what are you seeing will be the future of somewhere like New York, for example? Well, what needs to happen um, is very different than what is happening, but what needs to happen is um, is communities led by, by each other and by government and um, uh, moving to higher ground. I mean, really just building uh, smart urban design on a kind of a hub and spokes model where you've got good transit and it's, and it's above the floodplain. And, um, you know, there's a lot of knowledge in urban planning circles about how this should, how this should look. Uh, and it's just very hard for people to let go of the existing shoreline. Um, politicians don't want to let go of it because of the tax base. Um, people don't want to, you know, let go of familiar 
places and neighborhoods and it's all understandable. But after Hurricane Sandy, a few neighborhoods uh, in, in Staten Island, New York, got together and said, hey, look, we're tired of the flooding. And they had been flooded out a number of times um, before Sandy. And, and they actually got together as a community and moved. And, and there are um, increasing numbers of, it's still small, but increasing numbers of communities who are working together um, to, with government to, to, to find solutions like that. And, and it's, um, the, the scale of this is going to be enormous. And, and that's why the smart money is on getting ahead of it and stopping building in floodplains and um, only permitting building uh, in, in safe areas. And, and so it, it's happening in some places, but not, not nearly enough. No, no. I mean, even around here, I'm, you know, I'm still seeing lots of just broad scale suburban development going out across really low lying land near the coast. Um, a brand new hospital that was built in our region is in the floodplain. It's a minor flood. It would be on an island. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think one of my one of my main purposes in writing the book was really just to say, let's take a this kind of broader philosophical look at our relationship with the natural world. Right? We need to remember that we are, you know, one species among millions, but also, you know, we are nature. Like we, we have created a lot of systems that make us feel separate and, you know, possibly better than, or safer from, or, you know, there's all these um, ways in which we've separated ourselves from, from the natural world. Um, And it's really just time to ditch all that and, and to get back to uh, other ways of thinking, which are in every cultural system around the world. Um, I, I, I actually was a, a comparative religious studies uh, major in college. So I'm fascinated by, um, you know, the, the, the world's religious traditions and, and, and all the religions have this, have, have, and have an integrated understanding of, uh, man and nature in their, um, theologies. They're not always the parts of the traditions that are, um, that we're seeing right now in culture, but, but I, I'm really interested in, in what are the, 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 the traditions and the strains of, of thought through time, um, that we can draw on now to, to be smarter, you know, like we, we, we know that we need to, um, I mean, the Pope Francis wrote his, uh, powerful paper on, um, integral ecology. Um, there's one of the chapters in the book is about the move among the world's religious leaders to sort of turn that barge of culture toward an ecological awareness, um, which is fascinating to me. And, um, yeah, there's just so much potential for awakening this innate knowledge we have that we're part of nature and we just need to start telling that story to each other instead of the other story. Mm. And just as you were speaking to us, thinking, you know, when you're saying we are nature, I, I was also thinking we are, the ocean runs through us as well. You know, we are ocean and, um, 
And uh, so <clears throat> the new story that, that you're wanting to share, and wh- how is it that you feel that we can be communicating this? I mean, your book is a beautiful example of how we can, that can, can be communicated. And I always get stuck on this idea that it's just it, the story needs to go out wider and faster and there's this urgency about it. <laughs> how do you feel about that and how do you feel like we can we can shift this narrative at a pace that needs to happen or you have a different way of seeing that? No, that's the challenge of our time. I guess I feel... Um... I'm an optimist. I'm hopeful. Uh, I think we just, um, each do our piece. Um, I've seen such a shift in awareness in the, in the four years I've been researching the book and, you know, climate change was sort of this like occasional there, occasionally there would be a little blog somewhere, you know, but now it's just everywhere all the time in in the news. And it has to be, of course. So I feel like it's changing. It's certainly not ever going to be fast enough. Um, I guess I get a little bit philosophical about, you know, the, the earth, um, persists, right. (laughs) What we're doing is trying to save ourselves and, 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 and vulnerable people. Um, and so it's really right. Telling the story in as many, um, vivid and engaging ways as possible. And, and there is this research that says that paradigms can shift, right. That, Mm -hmm. that if enough people kind of start telling a new story, there, there are tipping points and, and, and that, um, you know, cultural understandings change and, and the, 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 it happens in response to pressure. Right. And I think, I guess I heard an interesting Buckminster Fuller quote recently, which was that, that the change will happen when, when the pressure builds, right. When, when there's just enough, um, enough bad enough bad news yeah I guess I guess that's that's it we don't move unless we have to I guess is the thing isn't it and and yeah and I think artists like to like to sort of get out there and and um you know think at the edge of these these questions and so maybe that's I think that's the role of art is to ask the you know hopefully the 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 challenging questions about where we're going next and how we get there. Yeah. I I was reading somewhere about your, um, so I was thinking, sort of thinking art, culture, and my mind went to something that I read about you um, studying um, the culture, ancient culture of, 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 the, of Gaelic language or Gaelic language and culture. I know that was a long time ago, but was that experience that you had in Scotland um, researching that, has that at all informed where you've taken your practice, your art, your thinking? You know, I've wondered about that lately, and I think actually the link is that, you know, that was an Indigenous culture of Europe. And uh, and so I studied a number, I mean, uh, as well as uh, alongside the Gaelic um, uh, all the different indigenous languages and cultures of Europe, like that's there too, right? We talk about indigenous as if it's um, Native American or Aboriginal or, but there's indigenous knowledge 
running through all of us. And I really, I really believe that we're not, um, I, I don't like, uh, you know, sort of demonizing Western culture. Um, I just think, you know, there's the, the, the kind of extractive consumer culture. Yes. Let's, let's, let's purge that. Um, but you know, there are wonderful traditions, uh, throughout the world that, that are, that are very, very rooted and tied to nature. I mean, our, you know, really only our grandparents or great grandparents knew, knew how to live in these cycles, right? They, they ate food seasonally and they, they, they traveled less frequently and they, they lived in a much more integrated way with their environment. And, um, you know, I think if we're smart right now, we get to keep the things like uh, medicine and, you know, the things that really have created the, 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 the health and well-being that we value, but we can let go of um, a, a lot of the, the, the aspects of, you know, I guess you, you call it culture, but I, there has to be another word for it, right? <laughs> of, uh, of the entertainment industry or, or, or whatever it is, um, uh, that, that really is, is not adding value to the, the, you know, the lived experience. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and you're right, you know, we, we all have that ancestry that connects us deeply somewhere in place and culture. And I think in a way, remembering, finding a way to remember that, connect with that and to feel that deep, deep connectedness I think is is really valuable but also talking you know with uh, local indigenous elders here that sense of really finding ways to connect we'll never become indigenous in this land but we can really connect deeply and and um and feel the the richness of this place and the story of the place and the language of the plants and the language of the seasons and and actually like as you were describing the oceans I'm sort of imagining how I interact with this place and the rivers and the and the forests here and and feeling part of that cycle so you know I I guess it's it's really you know one of the things that we can be doing is is deeply deeply connecting where we are in a way that moves us to 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 act in whatever way we can and i and i wonder in your in your community in your region so in half moon bay where where you're based what are the sorts of things that that the community there or is is uh, engaging in hmm. well it's uh we we chose to live there because it's a it's a small town and um near a large airport which is <laughs> which is nice um because we have family all over the world, but, but, but the, um, but you know, it's a farming town, um, going back 150 years, which is, you know, fairly old in California terms. And so, you know, we get to buy local food and be part of a, for years, I was uh, part of a, uh, you pick farm, um, you know, know your farmer, know where your food's grown. That's really, really critical. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, we're also a community that is, um, 50%, um, native, um, Latin American, mostly Mexican. And my kids went through an immersion, um, school program, which, you know, was, was about, um, cultural and linguistic 
sharing. Um, that was really valuable. Um, and I think, you know, in our own, California is, is a lovely place to be. I mean, you know, we've got solar panels and electric cars and, 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 and I know not everywhere, um, has this same orientation. And one of the things I'm really interested in and, and concerned about is how do we, you know, in America, there's this polarization that's going on these days. Um, how to the sense of community building can happen anywhere, right? We can all own like our relationship with our local farmers. We can all own, um, you know, building strong schools. We can all be part of, um, you know, building these sort of strong communities and, and strong communities, resilient communities is what's going to see us through um, the, the challenges to come. And so that it starts with relationships and it starts with our neighbors. And so I guess I've just tried to be an active, you know, community member and, um, and, and, you know, find the ways to, to, to be the good neighbor that you would want somebody to be for you. Mm. So that's a local level. And just, you know, just to wrap up, that's a very big question that I'm going to ask you. It's like, what is the, what, what would you like to see um, shift and change at, you know, like, is it a policy level or is it, what is the, where is it that the change needs to happen that can help create the pace and scale of change that we need, you know, to care for the oceans, for example, like, where do you see the, the biggest I see a lot of there? hope in the rights of nature movement, um, the legal rights of nature, um, of course, that's that's been advanced in in um, in New Zealand in particular and and other places. Um, there are green tribunals. I wrote about a green the India's green tribunal in one of our chapters uh, in the chapter on the Cook Islands. My my hope for the future is that um, is that there that the law they passed in uh, 2017 to protect their territorial waters from. Um, to protect them for sustainable development. Um, unfortunately, the current prime minister has is allowing deep sea mineral mining to go on, manganese mining. It's a, it's a travesty. Um, so my hope is that in some cases that the the the, the legal protection of large scale areas of of nature um, will create some breathing space, right, for those those mm -hmm. ecosystems and environments. Um, policy leaders tend to not be leaders, um, that we do need, I think it, I think this has to come as this awakening of, of people and organizations and, uh, you know, movements all over the world. It does seem to be happening. Um, if, you know, I think my hope is that people engage, um, in, in whatever way they can in the kind of biggest, most heartfelt, creative, you know, uh, somebody put it this way, like, what's your superpower and what do you care most about and go do that. Right. So, um, uh, everybody's got a skill and, um, and if we all start rowing our boats in the same direction, um, we're going to, you know, create space for nature to recover and for us to, um, 
build our relationship back with nature again in a way that will transform things. Oh gosh. And this really, to this really beautiful place that I think the part of the challenge is figuring out how to imagine this place, right? How to, how to, how to draw that picture. My next challenge for myself is, is, is that is like, okay, so, so, um, working with other artists to, to, to try to create this vision, um, of where is it we're going to and why is it so compellingly beautiful that we're just pulled, um, seamlessly, irrevocably toward it. Oh, fantastic. You know, I think that's actually one of the key things, isn't it? That we need to have a sense of what's possible and, and, and a, and a future that's not this sort of apocalyptic vision, but something that like, why is it worth, why is it worth making the change? Why is it worth fighting for the planet? Why is it worth, you know, all of these things that we keep talking about? Why, why? Well, and every chapter in the book actually has a, a little, a section called the view from 2050. So we actually do that in, in each of the chapters. We, mm-hmm. um, in combination with some of the hard things that are going to happen, you know, the, the flood that's going to come to New York or, or Shanghai or wherever, um, we talk about what's possible. So, you know, what, what are the things we can be doing right now? Basically it's a way to propose, what should we do right now? so that we, you know, change the arc of the story over the, the rest of the century. So, and beyond. So, um, all sorts of hopeful things. I mean, mm. gosh, this sounds like a book that needs to be in every single school as well. You know, like this I, I really do hope it has, you know, some educational application. I, it, you know, it's really appropriate for anything from, I would say middle school up and it's, it's, you know, it's fairly accessible. Um, and, uh, yeah, because because I think it is. It's about framing this idea and planting enough ideas. I wanted to just plant some seeds mm-hmm. um, so that if somebody reads the book in 10 years, they're like, oh, well, there's an idea I could pursue. You know, like, mm-hmm. that's but, a, you know, like the combination of, of the truth telling and the, the, you know, the scientific research with the, you know, the, the image of what's possible in the future. But, you know, the and also the perspective that you're bringing, you know, the perspective from the ocean and, and the material use, you know, all of those different, like the messages in the matter as well, isn't it? You know, the way in which you're presenting this and, you know, powerful perception shifts can come through engaging with a piece of work like that. Um, Thank you so much for, for, (laughs) I can't wait to get, get a hold of a copy and and have a look myself. So when it gets to Australia, eventually I'm going to be so excited. Yeah. Very soon. Very soon. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much for joining me today in conversation on the show. And um, well, thank any- you so much for having me. Yeah. And anyone who's listening, we're going to be putting all the links, remember, down below so you can find out um, references to Christina's work and her artwork and also to, to the book, of course. And um, yeah, thank you again, Christina. It's been an absolute delight to have you here chatting today and very thought provoking. Um, you've got my mind buzzing thinking about a number of different ways that I can maybe reconceptualize the way that I communicate the sorts of things that I do. So thank you for that. Oh, delightful. Thank you so much. Mm, Thank you. So that's all for today. Thanks so much for joining me. If you like a copy of my top 10 books to read, click the link below, pop in your email and I'll send it straight to you. 
You can also watch this interview over on my YouTube channel. I'll put the link below as well. And don't forget to subscribe, leave a comment. And if you've enjoyed it, please consider giving me a star rating. Believe it or not, the more people do this, the more podcast bots will discover this little podcast. So thanks again, and I'll see you again next week.